Well, good morning, everybody. It is a Friday morning at 7 o'clock, and I guess we'll see if I'm any more charming at 7 in the morning as I might be at any other time of the day. You can be the judge of that. It already seems as if in Henderson, Tennessee, it's humid already, and it'll get worse as the day goes on. I hope you're having a good day. What I'd like to do is redirect you to where we were last time, and that is on the second of our PowerPoint slide series. This is the one entitled Historical Background, and we were just about to talk about the Maccabees and some of their activity in the intertestamental period. Now this is a period when the uh, Jewish people found themselves suddenly independent of uh, the various powers in the world, and they would remain independent until about 60 before Christ, when finally Pompey, the Roman general, swept into that part of the world and began to take the eastern Mediterranean and put it into the Roman Empire. You might recall that what had happened is that the uh, Macedonians were trying to force the people of the empire to become Greek in their culture, in their language and everything, and that this caused a problem at least for many of the uh, people in Palestine, many of the Jewish people, because they felt that to be Jewish was also to be serving God and living a, a Jewish lifestyle, a, a righteous lifestyle in God's sight. You may recall also that uh, Judas Maccabeus, the man whose name meant the hammer, uh, and who was in fact a very powerful uh, personality, very forceful, and also was a brilliant guerrilla warfighter, was successful in driving the uh, uh, Greeks out of the land of Palestine, and so the Jewish people found themselves independent. As they drove the Greeks out of Palestine, they came back to the city of Jerusalem. You will recall that that was where, in the Temple of God, in the Holy of Holies, on the altar of God, that they had offered a pig to Zeus. Obviously, the Temple of God and the Holy of Holies had then been defiled in the Jewish people's sight. And so what we have here is a dilemma on the part of the Jewish people. In 1 Maccabees chapter 4, verse 46, we read of the dilemma that the Jewish people had at that moment. It says this, When the Greeks were driven out of Jerusalem and the temple was cleansed, the Jews stored the stones of the altar in a convenient place on the temple hill and then it adds, until a prophet should come to tell them what to do with them. What's fascinating about that statement in this particular passage is that the Jewish people seemed to be aware that the voice of prophecy had fallen silent. No longer were prophets uh, speaking to the Jewish people, telling them what they needed to do or how to handle certain situations. No prophet could tell them what to do with these defiled stones with the blood of a pig on it, so they simply stored them in perhaps some storage place and that was it. That's what makes it so remarkable then in the New Testament when John the Baptist begins to prophesy down in the Jordan uh, River Valley because the Jewish people had not seen this for 450 years. Not since Malachi had ceased his prophecies had they heard the authoritative voice of a prophet saying, Thus says the Lord. Now, the Greeks and their power began to diminish when the Romans began to take over the Mediterranean area. Roman ascendancy began about a hundred years before Christ, but they first of all secured the western 
the western end of the Mediterranean and then moved east towards Greece and then of course towards the Bible lands. The Romans won the military battles in the second century, but they lost the cultural war. Uh, it's fascinating to think that the Romans took on, adopted uh, Greek ways and the Greek language, and in many ways were conquered in turn, at least culturally, by the Greeks. There was Greek art and Greek literature and Greek philosophy in the Roman way of thinking, even uh, religion um, uh, from, from the Greeks. Sometimes the Romans would simply name, uh, give, give a Roman name, a Latin name to a Greek god. Uh, and it would be the same god doing the same thing and associated with the same legends. Uh, Greek uh, ways swamped Roman society and conquered in it in turn. From the first century BC on, all educated Romans were expected to know Greek in addition to Latin. Uh, all of them spoke Greek and all of them thought in the way the Greeks did. The most important symbol of Hellenism, uh, that is Greek ways outside of the city-state, uh, was the gymnasium. The role of athletics and Greco-Roman society is really due to Hellenistic or Greek influence. Uh, I had suggested in the last session that, in fact, there are many senses in which we are also uh, Greek in the way that we think. And I suspect that there is very little that um, is uh, more Greek in the way that we do things than uh, with regards to uh, sports. Uh, just picture a gymnasium, just picture uh, basketball being played in the gymnasium or even Greco-Roman wrestling or uh, other kinds of athletic competitions. This is so Greek. This is something that they started because uh, uh, other nationalities seem not to have had this idea of athletics and competition in the, in the sports field. Now, the gymnasium afforded social status a sense of connection. It would be sort of like joining a country club. Uh, here, uh, uh, Greeks, older Greek men and younger Greek men would, would gather together and talk and they would perhaps observe the competition of the young men as they did the various competitions, uh, athletic competitions that they had. At a gymnasium, there would also be literature and rhetoric and dance uh, being taught as well. So here was a very important part of Greek culture. Um, for the Jews, of course, the nudity of the Greek uh, athletes was a problem. Uh, the Jewish people, having a very high sense of what was proper, didn't like that. It meant that some uh, Jews would have to go to uh, the extreme of having their surgery for circumcision reversed uh, so that they could compete, young Jewish men could compete in the Greek way without being embarrassed about the uh, one uh, classic sign of the Jew. At first, Jews were reluctant, as I said, to uh, join the gymnasium and the games that the Greeks had. Uh, they, um, uh, a part, part of their problem also was the fact that so many of the games, the Greek games, were dedicated to Greek gods. Later, though, inscriptions showed that the Jews began to participate more and more fully. Uh, perhaps it was considered cool to join the uh, Greeks in, in their way of doing things. Evidently, it became easier to uh, separate paganism and the nudity in some of these Jewish people's eyes. Even Paul, it might be said, referred to athletics many times in his writings. Uh, I'll give just a couple of examples of this, but uh, notice, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 26. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 26.
The Apostle Paul says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What's remarkable about that passage is that he's using an athletic imagery to describe something that's spiritual. He's not boxing aimlessly. He's not running just um, up and down aimlessly. He's uh, running and serving and preaching and doing mission work with a purpose in mind. And then he speaks in terms of the discipline that would be necessary for a uh, an athlete to be successful. Uh, so boxing and running is mentioned. Paul also mentions stadium racing and athletic training and uh, perhaps most famously of all in 2 Timothy chapter 4 he refers to having finished the race and, and, and uh, uh, completed the course and the crown that was waiting for him as the victor in an athletic competition. My point is that the Apostle Paul had also been affected by his Roman surroundings and would use athletic imagery in the way that a, a modern preacher might refer to uh, the events of the day, perhaps uh, Alabama's football team playing against Tennessee's football team and perhaps speculate on which team might or might not win. It would certainly be one that would uh, divide a congregation in these regions, wouldn't it. But my, my suggestion is that a good preacher would probably draw from his cultural background to illustrate his points today, and the Apostle Paul certainly did that in his day. Theater, I have suggested, was also a part of the Greek culture. Uh, this is a major feature of Helen, the Hellenistic um, way of thinking, their behavior. They had athletic games and they also had theater. Uh, early plays, tragedies and comedies and the like uh, were drawn out of the Greek amphitheater and it was a, a part of uh, the entertainment that Greek people had in that day and age. It should be said this was before the days of television and the internet and so the community in a city like Corinth or Athens or Thessalonica would pour out of their homes and out of the downtown area and then range themselves up in the amphitheater to watch the latest play that had been uh, produced in that particular time. Herod Agrippa I in the land of Palestine built many uh, uh, theaters as well as baths in Palestine. Some rabbis though uh, opposed attendance to these theaters because they were held under the auspices of a Greek god. Uh, they would often even have a libation uh, to that particular god. People would walk into the amphitheater and perhaps sprinkle incense on an altar in honor of Zeus or Poseidon or some other Greek god. Now, uh, even in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, you might recall that there's a riot in the city of Ephesus. And the riot itself was one where uh, silversmiths got together and began to uh, shout out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, here is a really good snapshot of the effect that Christianity had on Greek culture. Here, were, uh, here was the, the great old force of Greek religion and Greek ways uh, fighting against the new religion and the new way, the Christianity that had been brought into the city of, of uh, Ephesus. And so in Acts 19 verse 29, uh, they poured into the Greek theater of that particular city. Uh, in fact, uh, the amphitheater is still there and those who have checked it out say that it had a capacity of 24,000 
people in that amphitheater. You can picture something the size, I suppose, of an NBA uh, arena uh, where perhaps 20,000 or 22,000 people could uh, go. Now, they had comedies and they had clown burlesques in these um, uh, amphitheaters. Sometimes the, uh, the jokes and the material were vulgar and had sexual allusions. We might even think about modern television, I suppose, in our day and age. And um, uh, I suspect that most of us will have watched some, uh, something on television and thought to ourselves, oh dear, that's objectionable from a Christian point of view, and change the channel, or even better, turn the TV off. But my point is that uh, theater in ancient Greece was was uh, a lot like that particular uh, feature of our society. Theaters were used for civic meetings as well. So uh, the city, the city of Athens or the city of Corinth, when they had to conduct business, would probably gather into the amphitheater and listen to the conversation of the uh, city leaders, the king and the other individuals who were making decisions for the city. Now you might notice in the PowerPoint that I even have a picture of a Greek theater. And I want you to look at it and, uh, and be impressed by how steep the, uh, uh, the rising seats are. Uh, notice how it's in a semicircular arrangement. Notice down at the bottom of the picture that there is the stage area where people, actors, and uh, speakers might stand or go about their uh, particular drama. Uh, because of the shape of the amphitheater in that semicircular way, the voices, the acoustics were very good. It would be able to reach people at the very top of the amphitheater, and so the actors and actresses could use normal voices and still be heard, uh, because of course this would be long before the days of uh, lapel mics or something along that line. Alexander the Great began a, a building and rebuilding mania uh, in his day. In fact, 350 cities were built in the centuries before Christ. Uh, consider how extraordinary a thing that was, uh, an urban renewal uh, of historic proportions, 350 cities. Uh, where the Greeks went in and took out the old buildings, the ones that might have been built by Syrian architects or uh, 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 Jewish architects or wherever they happened to be, and they restored them in a Greek way. And so you can picture the pillars, the uh, uh, Ionic pillars perhaps holding up the buildings, the civic buildings and the business buildings and the like. Uh, you can picture Greek signs over the top of the doors expressing the nature of this particular uh, business and, and what it's sold or, or the kind of uh, activity that took place on the inside. The city was um, vital to the life and ministry of Paul. If you think about it, most of Jesus' ministry was an, a rural one. Uh, he goes out onto a mountainside and he preaches a sermon. He walks down to the edge of the lake the, of Galilee and he preaches to a crowd from a boat. Uh, he walks up and down the dusty streets of Palestine, encountering people as he enters villages and small towns and that kind of thing. But Paul's ministry was an urban one. He went from city to city to city. Uh, Paul was a, a metropolitan individual. Uh, it was the main peg of his missionary methodology. We will talk about that a little later. But, but strategically, what Paul would do was he would come into a new region and choose to start in the major city in that region. I guess then, when he would have come to a modern 
Tennessee, he would have not begun in Henderson, Tennessee with his gospel, but perhaps he would start in Nashville or Memphis or uh, one of the large urban areas, and he would hope by establishing a church in, in that large city that then it would spread out to rural areas and at some point reach uh, places like Metropolitan Henderson or Metropolitan Pinson or something like that. The Jews in their diaspora were, of course, influenced by Hellenism, too. They were spread across the Greek world. They were, they were even living in major cities in Greece, such as Athens and Corinth and so on. So the Jews had left Palestine during the forced exiles, but they remained in the other parts of the world for a number of good reasons. They established new colonies. There is good evidence, for instance, that in Alexandria, in Egypt, that a very large Jewish colony was, was still there. It was a vibrant one. It was a vital one to that particular city. Uh, they established new business opportunities, and they didn't want to surrender those by coming back to Palestine. Uh, sometimes many of these Jewish people had a missionary zeal to spread the Jewish religion to their Greek neighbors. They practiced their religion openly. Uh, they were allowed to, as we suggested earlier. They built houses of education and houses of prayer, the synagogues. And so it was obvious in any community, uh, if there was, in any city, if there was a Jewish community, because you could go through the, the central part of the city and see uh, a synagogue out there. Now, we have spoken about two influences on the Apostle Paul. The first was, of course, the Jewish background. The second was his Greek background. So the third one would be the Roman influence on the first century. Uh, here, of course, would be the nation that was in control of all of the Mediterranean. In their way of thinking, this was the known world. Uh, at least this was the world that mattered in their eyes. The city of Rome was begun, according to legend, by twins. Romulus and Remus. You might recall that Romulus and Remus, according to the legend, were orphaned and raised by wolves. Uh, I suppose that was part of the self-image of people who came from the city of Rome. They were, uh, they were tough and they were uh, resilient and uh, they were uh, frightening to other people. In 753 BC, the city of Rome was established on the Tiber River on top of seven hills that overlooked the river. The Roman Republic is dated from about 500 to 30 BC, and I'd like to suggest that in those days, Rome was in many respects a democracy. It had a Senate, and of course, as you are aware, we even use that terminology in our day and age. We have a Senate in this country too. But the Roman senators were individuals who debated and discussed uh, city policy, and who voted and then made those policies into law. Uh, the Caesars that we are familiar with in our study of the first century of Christianity were uh, new, were different. Uh, this was not what uh, had originally been in mind when the city of Rome had begun. Uh, beginning with Julius Caesar, the Caesars began to take on more and more dictatorial influences until finally the uh, Senate was a rubber stamp organization. They simply listened to what Caesar wanted and then voted for it and said yes to do otherwise would be dangerous to the senator's health, you see. By the first century, Rome, by the third century, Rome was the master of the uh, uh, whole land of Italy, and then by the first century, Rome was mistress of the whole Mediterranean. 
perhaps you could remember your Shakespeare for a moment. We're going to talk about uh, some of the rulers that were in the early part of the first century. Uh, Shakespeare uh, writes about um, Julius Caesar and other individuals. You might remember that there was Mark Antony and Octavian. Both of these men were rivals for power in Rome. They, one or the other man, would become the next Caesar to replace Julius Caesar, who had been assassinated. Uh, Octavian was a young man. Uh, the uh, historians suggest that he was in his mid to late 20s, and he was a babyface. Uh, uh, handsome, Hollywood, good looks, and uh, uh, a ladies' man, perhaps. But, but he was a young man and inexperienced. The other individual was Mark Antony. He was something along the lines of in his late 30s or early 40s, uh, if you can picture a grizzled, rough Roman veteran of a dozen wars, a general who had already proved himself as an effective leader in Rome, and so most people suspected that Mark Antony was going to be the next Caesar. He was um, by far the most experienced of the two men. It also um, uh, is a suggestion that he had uh, uh, underestimated the skills of the young Octavian, as it turns out. If you are looking at the handouts, you'll see that I have an image of Suetonius, uh, who was another Roman general leading a legion in the uh, Roman army. Uh, Suetonius does not bear directly on our story, but I just wanted you to look at the Roman soldier and his typical clothing and his weaponry. Uh, it should be said that if we have in mind uh, that Roman soldiers were funny-looking guys wearing what looks like miniskirts, that in the first century, people certainly did not think of the Roman soldiers that way. Roman soldiers were the elite armed force of their day. Nobody could stand up against them, not the Greeks, not the Phoenicians, not the Assyrians, not the Medes and Persians. Roman soldiers were the 101st Mountain Divisions or the, the Green uh, Berets of the ancient world. They were the, the, uh, the, the, they were the SAS uh, Air Division of their day and age. They were the most disciplined, the most courageous, uh, the most well-equipped, uh, the best army in the world. And so when you see these men with their, their leather and metal uh, weaponry, and when you see the way that they worked together uh, in a, a cohesive manner, you see an army that overwhelmed every other army in the ancient world. The next slide shows us an image of the Roman Empire. If you recall the Greek Empire, the map that I had of that, you notice that the Greek Empire tended to start from Greece and move east all the way through uh, Persia and what we now know as Afghanistan into parts of India. So it was an eastern empire. But the Roman Empire is a Mediterranean one. If you see that dark color surrounding the Mediterranean, you can see that all the way around the Mediterranean, including Africa, including even the southern part of Great Britain, you can see that the Romans were in control of that. They were more a seafaring power than the Greeks were. And so Roman ships, and particularly military ships, could move up and down the Mediterranean and, and move soldiers, if need be, from one part of the empire to the other. My next image has um, uh, a drawing, an artist's impression, I, I, I'm sure, of uh, Ant Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Cleopatra, of course, was queen of Egypt. She would be ethnically Greek. You might recall, of course, that the Greeks were the ones who had uh, taken over uh, that part of the world, and so she was queen of Egypt, but she was aware that the new power, Rome, would overwhelm everybody, and so she was trying to play her cards right to be romantically involved with Mark Antony and perhaps then also become queen of um, all of the Roman Empire. Um, 
the other picture down at the bottom uh, there is of Octavian. If you gaze at the face of Octavian, I think you can probably see what I suggested when I said that he had uh, a baby face, say, the Hollywood good looks. Look at the hair. Look how well tended his hair is, like he had just come from uh, a hairdresser's to have his hair exactly right. Look at the eyes and look at the face. He's a young man with good looks. He, the cares of the world were uh, not yet laying heavy on him. Now, here is a young man that Mark Antony uh, uh, underestimated. Uh, here is a young man who actually beat Mark Antony in battle and became the next Caesar. Now, uh, the next image has a picture of what I've entitled Caesar Augustus. This is Octavian. When he assumed power as the Caesar of all of the Roman Empire, he changed his name uh, from Octavian to Augustus. You can hear the word August in there. Uh, here, uh, um, he would be an individual who was worthy of praise and honor and admiration. He was awesome, we might even say today. This is a later picture of Caesar Augustus. Here he is as a middle-aged man, and you can still see the eyes of the young man that we had seen in the previous picture, uh, but you can also see the, the lines in his face. You can see the cares and the worries. The face is more chiseled. Uh, here is a man for whom the uh, years of leading Rome had been heavy upon him. Uh, I suppose a modern analogy would be, and perhaps you've even seen this, images of, of one of our presidents. Um, I've seen pictures, for instance, of uh, Bill Clinton when he started out as a, uh, a young president, and then the pictures of Bill Clinton at the end of the eight years of his presidency, and, and the changes that have been wrought on him, the white hair and the uh, uh, lines in his eyes and around his mouth, all of the troubles and difficulties of his presidency had been heavy on him. And the same thing was true of Caesar Augustus. Now I'd like to spend just a moment to think about the contributions of the Roman Empire. The Romans also had a great influence, not only on their era, but even on ours. I suggested earlier that in many respects we're Greek in our society, in the way that we think, and the way that we see things. But we're also Roman. Uh, perhaps you are aware that 52% of the English language that we speak actually comes from the Latin. We have other influences, of course. There's German, and there's French, and there's Greek, and other uh, parts of the world also have their influence, but a little over half of the language that we're using right now, as I speak and as you listen, is Latin. And so the Romans did indeed have a great influence on us. I suggested that there are four contributions of the Roman Empire. I, I'm sure we could um, argue that there are many more than just four, but these are the ones that we'll consider at this point. First of all, there would be the Roman peace, uh, the Pax Romana, that would be the Latin term for it. Um, when Caesar Augustus came to power, when Octavian came to power, uh, it was at the end of a very difficult time for the Roman Empire where uh, the, the power struggles of the various powerful individuals to replace Julius Caesar had racked the whole of the Mediterranean world. Soldiers and wars all over the uh, land surrounding the Mediterranean and people were tired of the war. Uh, war is tough, particularly when it's in your own part of the world. Uh, when young men are, are, are being uh, uh, taken into the army, where they're uh, taking food from the farmers and, and, and uh, when they're destroying uh, walls, city walls and um, urban areas, it's a difficult time. So when Caesar Augustus came to power and ruled for the next 35 or so years, there was a Roman peace. 
The Roman peace was something that enabled uh, people to go back to business and go back to farming. And there was a great uh, period of prosperity. Business was good. Although people didn't necessarily appreciate everything the Romans did, they certainly were happy with the fact that the Romans kept the peace. A second influence were, would be Roman bridges. I'll have some images in just a moment. Uh, Roman roads and bridges, they were great builders. And when they built a Roman road, uh, they built it to last. They built it well. Uh, when they uh, came across an object, for instance, a, a canyon with a river running through the bottom, they would simply build a bridge over it. Uh, that way you wouldn't have to wind down into the valley and cross the river and wind back up out of the other side of the valley. You'd simply go straight across on one of those well-built Roman bridges with the arches that held the bridges up. A third thing that the Romans did was they expanded citizenship. I think Paul is a good example of that. Consider the fact that Paul was a Jew, not a Roman. Consider the fact that Paul grew up in a, a Greek city, Tarsus, not in Rome or not in Italy. And yet Paul had Roman citizenship. One of the things that the Romans did, and it was probably a very thoughtful and wise policy, is that as time went on, they held out... Uh, an advantage, an incentive to individuals in the Roman Empire to, to serve the Roman Empire. And when people did so, when they did so with distinction, then Rome would offer them Roman citizenship. This enabled many individuals who were not ethnically Roman uh, to vie for the opportunity to become Roman citizens and, and have the various privileges that was there. And that was one of the things that held the Roman Empire together. And the fourth thing is that people in the empire had relative religious freedom. You're probably aware that that was not true of Christianity, at least towards the end of the first century and leading on in the next couple of centuries. But I want you to remember that, that in fact, uh, Christianity was uh, a new religion and it had to take time to be recognized by the Roman Empire when it was apparent that Christianity was not uh, a sect of Judaism, that it was a religion on its own. But most religions across the empire were registered and known by the Romans and, and they tolerated all of those. Now, going back to some of the images that I have in the PowerPoint, I have a picture here of a Roman road in Pompeii. Uh, this is not to be confused with the Roman general uh, who had taken over the eastern Mediterranean. You do recall probably that Pompeii was one of the cities destroyed by Mount Vesuvius about 70 years after Jesus' birth. Uh, it had been completely covered in, in, in the uh, lava, uh, in the ash of the uh, eruption of that uh, mountain. And so what we have when we cleared away the, when archaeologists cleared away the rubble and everything is a very well-preserved Roman city. Um, archaeologists and historians have learned a great deal about Roman society and Roman building by looking at Pompeii. But you can see the picture here. You can see the, uh, the road with the tile, and you can see sidewalks on either side. Uh, you can see even today, this is two, 20 centuries later, how beautifully maintained the road is. You can picture Roman chariots and Roman horses and other means of transportation moving up and down the city, being able to move through the city and out the other side. Roman bridges and Roman roads were all over the empire. If you drop your eyes down to the next part of the PowerPoint, uh, here is a, a bridge in uh, Acalatara in Spain. Uh, I want you to observe the arches. 
that hold up the bridge. Uh, Roman engineering was brilliant uh, for its day and age. Uh, they were able to build bridges that are even used today. Uh, the famous German Autobahn, uh, world famous for being well-built German engineering, if you might recall, uh, sometimes still uses the same foundation that the Romans built over these bridges. I have another uh, bridge um, uh, in the image. It's, this is at Eurymedon in Turkey. And I want you to see that this is a pretty steep canyon that we're looking at. And yet the Romans managed in this case to use a single arch uh, to cross over the canyon. And that way Roman armies and Roman business could utilize that bridge to their advantage. Now, uh, there are three ways that an individual in the empire could be granted Roman citizenship. Of course, this is important because Paul was a beneficiary of exactly this. I remind you of the words of Paul himself in Acts 22 and verse 26. Uh, well, this was uh, actually the words of the Roman centurion who looks to his tribune and says, perhaps pointing to uh, Paul, this man is a Roman citizen. Uh, they were about to beat him, and that was one of the things you could not do to a Roman uh, citizen. It was one of the, the privileges that a Roman citizen had. He would have probably said this in Latin, civis romanas sum, civis romanas sum. Civis is civil, uh, citizenship. Uh, romanas obviously is Rome, and sum, uh, this, uh, uh, this, this one. There were three ways that one became then uh, a Roman citizen. Number one would be birth. He was only from the father, but if your father or your grandfather or great-grandfather had been a Roman citizen, then you could become one. Uh, there's a second way that, it could, that you could become a Roman citizenship, and that is that you could buy your citizenship. In fact, in the conversation that I had alluded to just a moment ago, that's exactly what the Tribune had done. Notice, if you would, Acts 21, verse 31, where the conversation takes place between uh, the Roman soldier and Paul himself. It's a, a fairly well-known one. Acts 21, verse 31. And as they were seeking to kill him, we read, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when he saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested them and ordered them to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came up to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, uh, crying, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? I suppose uh, he was a little surprised to learn that this Jewish man, this uh, apparently controversial Jewish man, spoke good Greek. Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you to permit me to speak to the people. And so here is this encounter between these two men. Uh, uh, drop your eyes back. Uh, to um, drop your eyes back, I, I beg your pardon, uh, uh, to an earlier conversation uh, between uh, the Roman soldiers and, and Paul. This is um, back in uh, Acts 21. I'm sorry, uh, Acts um, 21, 
verse 27. This is not where I wanted to be, I beg your pardon. One of these things happen, these things happen when one is trying to record, uh, where uh, in a classroom uh, we could all pause and um, look at the uh, various uh, uh, words. So here we are. This is Acts 21, verse 22. Um, up to his uh, word they listened to them. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Uh, that would be the Jewish crowd. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, it sounds like the uh, Jewish crowd was in full temper tantrum, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out uh, why they, had, they were shouting against him like this. I, I, I love the methodology that's used, examined by flogging. I wonder if he got a lot of information out of people by beating them, and then they would go ahead and say something. Uh, I'm sure that if I was being flogged, I would go ahead and make up any story to keep them to to get them to stop flogging me. Uh, verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, "Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned?" When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, "What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen." And that's what we had referred to earlier. So the tribune came and said to him, "Tell me, are you a Roman citizen?" And he said, "Yes." The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. The King James, you might recall, uh, has that famous saying, uh, but I was born free. And that's precisely what was going on. History says that you had to use two years of the income of a day laborer to buy your citizenship. The third way that you could get citizenship is by service rendered to the Roman state. Uh, this might be in the sense, for instance, of a Roman soldier who fought in a, uh, 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 a distinguished manner, uh, defending Roman interests in some part of the empire. And what you would have then is uh, his reward, I suppose, something like a purple heart or something like that, some kind of medal that a modern military man might get. But this was an even bigger deal because a, a soldier of almost any background in the empire could become a Roman citizen if he fought courageously and bravely uh, and uh, was given the reward for that. There were a number of very significant privileges that the Roman citizen was given. There were also responsibilities because Romans were disciplined and they understood the privilege that it was, that was, that it was theirs to have. Uh, I've noted here six of these, and if you are following in the PowerPoint, it begins with this. Number one, they could serve in the regular army as opposed to the auxiliary forces. The auxiliary forces would be uh, forces drawn from uh, uh, um, foreign people, uh, people who were not Romans. Um, this was considered a second-class army, uh, not as disciplined and not as uh, highly motivated as the regular army. But if you became a Roman citizen, you could become a part of the elite forces of the Roman army. Number two, they could vote. They could attend the games and entertainment. Uh, picture in your mind, I suppose, the Colosseum in the city of Rome. And picture the idea that, that citizens could go and watch the gladiators and uh, other games that the Romans um, uh, were, were fond of watching. Number three, they were exempted from many taxes, including the land tax. So certainly that was a significant privilege of being a Roman citizen. Number four, they received full protection of the government. 
they, uh, they, they, had, they were given legal needs provided. Uh, I suppose today they would be like a pro bono lawyer uh, could come and serve the Roman citizen. Uh, the murders, if they were accused of murdering or, or stealing or something like that, uh, they, they were uh, considered innocent before proven until proven guilty in much the manner of all American citizens in our day. Uh, they were given, their marriages were recognized. There were lots of things that uh, were, were legal benefits that Romans had. Uh, number five, they had the right to a trial and the trial could not be delayed. Uh, again, you probably recognize that American citizens uh, also had these rights, but of course the distinction is in America, all Americans had those rights, whereas in the Roman Empire, it would be only Roman citizens that did. And number six, and this is um, certainly significant from our study of the New Testament, uh, the Roman soldier, the Roman citizen, I'm sorry, could not be tortured. He couldn't be uh, uh, scourged, he couldn't be chained, uh, he could not be crucified, he could not die from an ignominious punishment, uh, what they considered that. So, for instance, a Roman criminal could be beheaded because that was quick and that was merciful uh, and, and it was over, uh, but the crucifixion, of course, was a torture that ended in death and so an individual like Jesus would die on the cross because he was not a Roman citizen and there was no legal reason why you couldn't put him on that very uh, terrifying uh, way of dying but Paul could not be crucified because he was a Roman citizen that those were amongst the rights that they had now Paul used his citizenship at least three times in the book of Acts uh, it's interesting that he uh, takes those rights. Uh, some of his colleagues would not have that privilege. Uh, Peter would have been Jewish and not a Roman citizen, and so he would not have had that particular benefit. But Paul did, and he went ahead and used it. In Acts 16, verses 36 and 37, you might recall that Paul and Silas both of whom were Roman citizens, had been arrested, had been beaten, had been thrown into the inner part of the prison in Philippi. And there they, if you recall, sang hymns and prayed, and the other prisoners were listening to them. But afterwards, apparently, the, the, the Philippian uh, authorities had been far too quick to condemn these men, and they should have probably found out what their uh, legal status was. But when these men were released after the conversion of the Philippian jailer, Paul can back to the town council and the town council says you can go in peace uh, but Paul's not going to leave it at that uh, he says no uh, you took two Roman citizens and you put them in prison and you beat them and you did not give them a trial and and so uh, he terrifies them a little bit because they knew that they would be in great legal trouble because of that a second time that Paul used the citizenship is found in Acts 22, verses 25 to 28. It is the conversation that I just read in the book of Acts, where uh, Paul listens to the tribune say, I bought my citizenship, and then Paul says, yes, but I was born free. The third, uh, and of course, uh, most well-known instance of this was when Paul made his appeal to Caesar. Uh, you remember that he had been in uh, uh, Caesarea for about two years. I'm sure he was tired of putting up with uh, uh, the delays, uh, with a long time he'd been in prison, and he finally decided to take matters in his own hands. And as a Roman citizen, he took something that was his right. He could go to what we might think of as the Supreme Court 
of that day and age. He said, I appeal to Caesar. Probably that does not mean that Paul would actually see Caesar himself, though he may have. Uh, it simply meant that he would go to Rome and then the very finest legal representation and the very highest court would hear his case. Uh, perhaps he felt like at that particular juncture that his, uh, uh, the local authorities were too corrupt or too influenced by the surroundings that they found themselves in to do that. No. Um, I have finished that second of the PowerPoint series, so uh, I, uh, I would ask you to go to the third one, which is entitled Paul's Conversion. Paul's conversion. Now, uh, I should pause and uh, uh, tell you where we are at this point. Uh, at the end of this particular PowerPoint series, uh, when you consider the first three, the first one uh, was the introduction, the second was the historical background, and the third one was the conversion of Paul. At the end of this third PowerPoint series will be the material for the first test that you will have to do. Uh, so at the end of, of um, this particular PowerPoint series, I'll talk a little bit more about the tests. Now, if you found uh, Paul's conversion, uh, you will see an image. Of course, it's an artist's impression of uh, the bright light that fell upon Paul on the outskirts of Damascus. You can see the men at the back, uh, some soldiers, uh, perhaps some individuals riding on horses and the like, and they're blinded by the light. But Paul has fallen to his knees and uh, uh, brought an arm around his face to shield his eyes from the bright light. And you remember, of course, that that was a, a life-changing event in his life at that particular moment. Now, um, the next image is the street called Straight. Remember, after Paul was blinded, he was taken into the city of Damascus, and he stayed at the home of a man named Judas, who lived on a street called Straight. Well, the street is still there, uh, and this is an image of it. In fact, um, if you go to Damascus, they will show you uh, to uh, what they believe to be the actual house where the Apostle Paul spent three days uh, neither eating nor drinking but praying and the like. So uh, at least you can have that image. Now, I have a map on the next image. You can see Damascus. It is in the southwestern part of Syria. Uh, you, might, uh, you might know that the uh, land just to the west of Syria uh, would be Lebanon today, and south of Syria would be the land of Israel. So the the soul of Tarsus, of course, he was not the Apostle Paul yet, would have moved from Jerusalem through the land of Palestine, through the land of Israel, and entered the southern part of Syria and entered Damascus. There was a significant Jewish population there, and there also apparently were a lot of Christians, and these are the ones that Paul intended to bring back to Jerusalem and to try them. The next image I have down here is an image of the old city of Damascus. Of course, Damascus even today is a, a modern metropolitan area. In fact, um, as I speak, uh, the, the nation of Syria is undergoing great convulsions. Uh, it appears that the uh, um, uh, that the uh, president of uh, Syria, uh, Mr. Assad, is trying to beat down a, a group of people who are trying to ask for more rights, uh, more democracy in that particular nation. But, but the city of Damascus, the old city, you can see the walls and you can see the arches and the uh, ancient architecture of that city. Some of it goes back uh, to the days of the Crusades and some of it goes back even to the first century. Then the next image I have is Damascus at night. Uh, 
of course, the lights that you see in that image is um, a part of the, the modern city of Damascus. It's something like a million in population now. So it is a major urban area. Now, uh, I turn your attention then to uh, the language in Acts chapter 9 and verse 2, uh, where we begin with the apostle, I'm sorry, with Saul of Tarsus and his intention to deal with the Christian problem. Acts chapter 9 and verse 2. I'll begin with verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters for the, to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. One of the privileges of the Jews was to uh, uh, be able to seek extradition of Jewish people in other cities, other countries that were not in the land of Israel. And they could go to those countries and, and extradite a Jewish person if they felt like he had broken a Jewish law and bring him back to Jerusalem to be tried. And so this is the, 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 the papers, you see, that Saul of Tarsus was seeking to get. Uh, a remarkable image of Saul of Tarsus. While there were certainly other Jewish leaders who were angry with uh, various Christians and what they were doing, it seems that Paul was the supreme actor in those early days. Uh, he was a man of action. He was an individual who didn't sit and talk about the Christian problem and something must be done. Uh, if he felt like there was a problem with Christians, uh, he would go out there and try to do something about it. And so that's how he set it up. Notice that in this particular uh, passage, it's, uh, the Christianity is referred to as the way. In fact, in a number of passages in the book of Acts, uh, this phrase, the way, is used in Acts 19 and verse 9, in Acts 23, uh, also Acts 19 verse 23, in Acts 22 verse 4, and 24 verse 14, and other places, uh, the, the term the way is used. It's a wonderful way of thinking of Christianity, uh, to be able to say, here is a group of people that live a particular way. It's not just something that's done in a church building on a particular hour of the week, but it's something that influences all of their lives. And that characterized early Christianity was that the individuals who became converted to Jesus, and indeed Saul of Tarsus, when he was converted, they would live a lifestyle. It would be a way of life. It would not just be a time that they spent at a, a place of worship, and then they would leave and conduct business and conduct family and conduct friendship in any way that they please. For Christians, it was indeed a way of life. We've come to the end of this particular session. I appreciate everybody's attention, and I appreciate you hanging with me. Uh, we will close this session down, and then you can go to the next recording. Thank you, and goodbye. <laughs>